Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Melena Rice. I'm a third-year PhD student in the Yale Astronomy Department studying exoplanets and small bodies. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a second-year PhD student in Boston University's Astronomy Department, where I study planetary atmospheres, specifically Mars at the moment. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a second-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and other unusual transient events through data science. You're listening to episode 11, The Chaotic Universe. And a lot has changed in the past couple of weeks, and I don't know about you guys, but for me this definitely feels like a pretty timely topic. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I uh, have been displaced. I am currently at my parents' house, as I think uh, is the case for several of my friends who are all moving around and, well, (laughs) not as much as we were potentially, but uh, trying to keep safe, as I hope is the same uh, for all of our listeners out there. It's definitely a chaotic time for me as well. Uh, Like you, I'm staying with my parents for the moment, Uh, not going out, not seeing anybody. And some things, you know, work well over virtual and some things do not. Some things definitely do not. Yeah. And I think everyone's kind of separately together trying to figure this whole thing out. But staying safe is the number one priority. Yeah, absolutely. And the world has a lot of uncertainty in it at the moment, as we've all been sort of experiencing. And so we wanted to bring in a slightly more lighthearted discussion of uncertainty in the behavior of astrophysical bodies across the universe. So it's chaos in a pretty different context. Uh, And chaos is actually a big branch of mathematics that studies systems that are very sensitive to initial conditions, to the extent that it becomes impossible to track their behavior into the very distant future, and that behavior ends up looking effectively random. So an example of this is the butterfly effect. Uh, This is a well-known phrase that describes how the flap of a butterfly's wings can have a substantial enough effect to change the weather, and so it's effectively showing that even tiny changes in your initial conditions can ultimately lead to big changes in your system over time. When I heard that we were going to be talking about chaos this week, I wanted to understand where the phrase butterfly effect came from. I was hoping that I could find the original quote. And so I looked it up. I have an answer. Do you guys want to take a guess at who came up with the phrase butterfly effect? I mean, my best guess is probably, like, some sort of angry weatherman. (laughs) Richard P. Chaos, the famous butterfly scientist. How that butterfly managed to become a scientist is beyond me. (laughs) No no love for that one? Jeez. Well thought out. Everyone's a critic. (laughs) Well, it's, it's a bit of a trick question because, as it turns out, it wasn't really one person. And there is no definitive quote of the butterfly effect. The first evidence I could find of someone talking about this idea of a butterfly causing a chaos was Ray Bradbury, who wrote about it in a story he published in 1953 called A Sound of Thunder. If you Google around, you can find the text online. 
But this idea was that if you went back in time and killed a butterfly, it could change the course of history. That's how he talked about it. And uh, the man who came up with most of the current state of chaos theory as we know it is named Edward Lorenz. And he published a paper in 1963 called Deterministic Non-Periodic Flow. This is really the, the basis of the system of chaos that kind of we work with today. And it's, it's very math-based and it's also very computational-based is that you have these rounding errors in your computer and these little tiny rounding errors create different outcomes even though they're so, so small. And though he didn't mention the butterfly effect in his paper, he talked about it to a newspaper or something afterwards and he said, quote, one flap of a seagull's wings would be enough to alter the course of weather forever. It's an interesting quote, but <laughs> not a butterfly. Uh, I actually like the seagull effect better than the butterfly effect. It's definitely fun. <laughs> There's something more poetic about a butterfly for some reason to me. The seagulls aren't really beautiful. Mm. Yeah, and a butterfly is smaller, so it like seems more dramatic, but... Mm. Right, that's true. that's true. Seagulls are underrated, though. They're good birds. That is a very unusual take, <laughs> and it's not one that I agree with. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're going to get into that here. <laughs> okay, well, neither of you is from California, so... <laughs> <laughs> but the, the punchline here of the butterfly effect is that uh, Edward Lorenz was giving a talk at the American Association for the Advancement of Science in 1972. And I don't know if this was the case then, but he didn't write the title of his talk. And the person who was directing the session, whose name is Philip Merrilies, created the name of the talk, quote, Does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? And that is where the butterfly effect came from. And that's how we know it from now on. So it was really this guy, Merrilies, who created it, even though he had almost nothing to do with the theory or with the kind of poetic uh, ideal of a butterfly changing the course of history. You know what that means, though, right? Not a clue. It means that the notion of the seagull effect is still fair game, right? <laughs> Thanks, In Alex. I appreciate that. I'm just, well, what would the se <laughs> seagull effect be? Uh, I don't know. I think this is still the seagull effect. You're just in denial. Let's, okay, I'm, I'm going to be brainstorming what the seagull effect could really be as we move on from here. Will, why don't you tell us about your astrobite? Yeah, let's get into it. Uh, the bite I read this week is called Unlocking the Secrets of Chaotic Planetary Systems. This was written by Spencer Wallace, summarizing a paper by Hussein and Tomorrow published this year, 2020. Very cool. What's the goal of this paper? Now, if you've taken an advanced astronomy course you've definitely seen the solution of the two-body problem. Maybe if you took an introductory course, you would see it, but not, not in its full complexity because it really is a hard problem. It turns out there's a lot of math you have to do to just describe how two bodies orbit one another, orbit a common center of mass. You can do it with celestial mechanics. You can do it with a vector calculus. But once you add even one more body to it, it becomes unsolvable to humans. So that's where the Martians that you study come in, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I actually heard that uh, Isaac Newton thought a lot about the three-body problem, and he once reported to somebody else that it made his head hurt so much that he refused to think about it anymore. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, same. <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad he wasn't a computer, because that's how we solve the, the three-body problem up to the n-body problem is we just, we just put them into the computer. And yeah, he should have just gone to the Apple store. What was he thinking? 
<laughs> foolish, foolish Isaac Newton. The Apple Store came to him. Ooh, oh. Nice. Well played. Well played. So we've been talking about hard problems, right? So this sounds like an extremely hard problem, but a hard problem is not necessarily a chaotic one, right? So right. will what makes orbits specifically chaotic? If you have three bodies, and even if you have more, right, it'd be even more chaotic potentially. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, chaos means the system is hypersensitive to the initial conditions, but a hard problem can just mean it requires a lot of computational power or a, a PhD. So what it turns out is when you have a planetary system, if you slightly tweak the starting place of the planets, that can be the starting position or starting velocity, you get a completely different evolution. And with just three bodies over time, it's enough to break apart the system, cause collisions, cause all sorts of different things. That's chaos. So that doesn't sound great for our understanding of planetary systems, since there are a lot of planetary systems, including the solar system, that have more than just three bodies. So what do the authors do to try to solve this problem? What the authors were doing is simulating a compact planetary system, kind of like the TRAPPIST-1 system. They don't use that per se, but they pick a very small planetary system orbiting a rather small star, and they take some initial conditions, they let the system run until it becomes unstable. And then they tweak the starting conditions and see what happens in the outcome. So what are they looking for? What are they trying to quantify? The important quantitative outcome from every model is how long it takes before the planetary system becomes unstable. So, Will, you've talked about instability, and then we're also talking about chaos. So specifically in this paper, what is the distinction between those two phenomena? Yeah, let's make this very clear. Uh, the word chaos has a very specific meaning. The word instability may not. So these authors define instability as when planet orbits cross. That is, planets get too close, maybe they collide, maybe they eject uh, a planet. And so that's what they're calling instability. And chaos is different. Chaos is when you start at this almost the same place, but you end up with a different result. It doesn't have to become unstable to be chaotic, and it doesn't have to be chaotic to be unstable. Okay, so what did the authors end up finding? What they found is in 95% of the cases they ran, the outcome, how long it takes to become unstable, is a log-normal distribution. So if you take the log of the distribution, it looks like a Gaussian. And so that is to say that if you tweak the starting conditions slightly, the outcomes are unpredictable, but the distribution of outcomes is predictable. So, Will, we're talking about the ability to predict an overall range of potential outcomes, even if you're entirely unable to predict an individual outcome for a set of initial conditions, this sounds a lot to me like a random walk. It is very much like a random walk. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. So I also want to make the point, you said that 95% of the starting cases have a log normal distribution in time. Mm -hmm, that's right. What happens to the other 5%? The other 5% have what they call a peaked distribution. That is, they all end up in about the same place despite having slightly different initial conditions. Got it. Thanks. <laughs> so what does this physically mean? Like, what do they end up determining as, like, a more broadly applicable conclusion from this paper? What they are doing with the quantitative outcome, I talked about how long it takes to become unstable. What they want to do with mm -hmm. that is compare it to the Lyapunov time. And 
this is a, a complicated thing. So I want to take a little time, make sure I understand this right, make sure our listeners know what's going on here. A lot of times in physics and astronomy, things are exponential in time. So they can grow exponentially, they can change exponentially. And so when things are exponential, that is e to the something times t, it's very useful to talk about what the e folding factor is. That is how long it takes for the system to increase by a factor of e or decrease by a factor of e. And we just use e because it's built into the exponential, it's convenient. So if you have e to the power of something times t, the something, if you take one over that something, it becomes a time. And so you can kind of talk about the time it takes for things to change by a factor of e. So now going back to the problem we have here, imagine all these planets in orbit. What you really want to know is how long does it take for the system to become chaotic? And chaotic means unpredictable. And traditionally, when you describe this with a model, the Lyapunov time is 1 over the exponent in that model that describes the system. So this is, this is from a purely uh, idealized analytic state. This is not from a, an actual model running state. And so what they want to do is they want to take their models that they run on the computers that have little tiny uncertainties in them and, and, and errors built up from the chaos, compare that to what analytically you derive on paper to be the time scale when things go haywire. And so we were also talking about instability timescales versus the Lyapunov timescales, right? And so they're trying to compare those to each other as well as to these analytical estimates. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And what do they find? So the major finding is that in the 95% of cases, that is with the log normal distribution, they find that the system becomes chaotic in, in a few or many Lyapunov times. So it takes longer than the one Lyapunov time to become chaotic. And it becomes stable after it becomes chaotic. So that is, the, one of the planets gets ejected or the planets collide after the chaos takes over the system. And that's, that's complicated because, remember, to understand chaos, you're not running one model. You have to run a million models with very, very slight different inputs. So that is, when you run this, this host of models with very, very slight inputs, they're going to get to a point where they all look different, where they're all behaving different, and then planets are going to crash into each other. And that's in the 95% of cases. And the chaos, the, the fact that they all look different, takes many, many Lyapunov times in most cases. Interesting. Remember, Lyapunov time is a... Uh, it's a it's on paper analytic mathematical solution. It does not understand anything about the specific models being run on the computer. So it's a way of thinking about things. It's not predictive specifically to anything that, that was run here. So this is different from comparing the instability timescale with the chaotic timescale. You're talking about comparing the analytical chaotic timescale with the uh, calculated observed chaotic timescale. Correct. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. And so if you want to do that, the first thing you were suggesting, which is compare the instability, that is when the planetary system itself gets, you know, screwy, the planets crash into each other and whatnot, to the amount of time it becomes chaotic, that is unpredictable. Um, that's actually an interesting thing because in the 95% case, 
they become chaotic, unpredictable, before they become unstable. Things crash into each other. But in the other 5%, they actually crash, they become unstable before they become chaotic, unpredictable. So in those cases, there almost is no chaos because the planets do things that break the system apart before chaos has a chance to take over. So that would be even less than a Lyapunov time. Hmm. So drawing this all together, what can we <laughs> say, Will? What does all this mean? It th- means it's time for your astrobite. <laughs> uh, it means I'm done. That's what it means. Fair enough. Well, maybe it'll shed some more light on the problem to describe another end-body problem. In my case, I'm going to be talking about the astrobite It's Complicated. Three-body interactions can affect LIGO's binary black hole mergers, which was written by Thankful Cromarty based on a paper by Tagawa and Umamura in 2018. And this paper talks about black hole mergers. So typically when we think of black hole mergers, we conjure up this picture of two black holes locked together in spiraling faster and faster and closer and closer until they finally merge. The question these authors wanted to answer is, what if these black holes didn't start out gravitationally bound to each other? And they argue that this is currently understudied in literature. And so they approach it using a post-Newtonian N-body code with gas accretion included. Ah, post-Newtonian comes just after the postmodern era. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you're, you're right in that I should probably explain what post-Newtonian means. <laughs> Please. <laughs> In this case, post-Newtonian is a particular way to incorporate relativistic effects in simulations as small corrections to Newtonian gravity by considering only the most significant, lowest order general relativistic effects. For example, in this simulation, gravitational wave emission. And the value in doing it this way is that we don't have to do a full expensive GR calculation at every time step, which would take forever. Would you call it the lazy person's general relativity? (laughs) <laughs> you you could call it that i would probably call it the smart person's general relativity <laughs> <laughs> okay so so alex you're talking about these systems where your binaries are not gravitationally bound you have black holes that are not gravitationally bound that crash into each other and so what observational constraints do we actually have for these kinds of systems because they sound quite rare Right. So we know from LIGO the relative mass ratios of two black holes in uh, a collision. We don't really know much about the physical uh, environments where they emerge. So in observing run one and two of LIGO, we have constraints, like I said before, for the mass ratios. We have two black holes that are roughly the same mass, each on order of 30 solar mass. And the authors, in this case, attempted 264 different initial conditions. So simulations with many different initial conditions. And they found that 135 of these simulations produced a binary black hole merger within 10 billion years. And of those 135, 16 of them match the gravitational wave mass predictions from observing run 1 and observing run 2. 264 is way more than our usual three-model comparison. (laughs) Without explaining all of them, what were a few things that they changed between the models? Yeah, so they changed lots of things. Uh, Most importantly, they changed the accretion efficiency of the black holes, how efficient it was at gaining mass before it merged. And 
the initial masses and in addition the radius of this overall gaseous region so i should say in the simulation they started out with five black holes at either 20 25 or 30 solar mass uh, with some number density for this big gaseous region okay so these black holes were not bound to each other but they were all gravitationally bound to this large gaseous region and they then just evolved the simulation and what, what I liked about this paper is that the authors narrated the evolution of the system and what the different black holes were doing uh, in almost real time. So the interactions between black holes seemed almost like, I don't know, you were watching this sporting event in real time. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? Like some sort of underground astrophysics black hole fighting ring with like narrators <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> Only astrophysicists. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah, it would be such a nerdy TV show. <laughs> I wouldn't watch it. Well, there are no sports right now, you know. Got to watch something. That's, That's fair. <laughs> you can't you can't argue cruelty, right? Yeah. Because it's yeah. Uh, black holes aren't feeling it. Anyway, we should move on. <laughs> Alex, break down for us the trajectory of one of these black holes. Will do. Okay, so the black holes start by getting closer to the gravitational center of this massive dense cloud from dynamical friction. So dynamical friction is basically if you're moving through uh, a dense region of material, in this case gas, you actually leave kind of awake because of the gravitational interaction of the black hole with the material around it. So it pulls material in from around it as it's moving through. And then the material actually pulls in behind the black hole, which serves to decelerate the black hole. So the velocity decreases, their peculiar motions decrease, and they start moving slowly inward toward the center of this gravitational potential. And eventually, the two of the five black holes in the system get close enough to each other that a binary momentarily forms. Ah, what they call in Hollywood a meat cute. <laughs> Exactly. This is the meat cute of the simulation. But I should mention that before and during this momentary binary phase, you have chaos in the form of a series of three body interactions from different black holes where an interloper takes the place of one of the two black holes in a binary. It throws another one out, takes its place, they spin for a little bit, and then another one gets ejected as you have another binary formed. I have no idea what they would call that in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, that's so, pretty dramatic. <laughs> it, is, it is very... This is why it would be entertaining to watch on TV. <laughs> yeah, it's like backstabbing, stealing, throwing out the window. Exactly. What I call the seagull effect. <laughs> ah. <laughs> okay. In any case, the cycle repeats itself. You have a binary, you have a three-body interaction, you have an interloper, and... All of this is happening in this gas-dense environment, which can cause black holes to gain as much as 10 solar masses of accretion near the beginning of the interaction. But the accretion slows as the black hole velocities start to increase as it gets closer and closer to the center. Now, I should mention, and I'm going to mention this until the end of days, that uh, we should think about our child-eating-spaghetti analogy from previous episodes. Oh. So... <laughs> if you'll remember, <laughs> they're, the back. Messier, they're back. The messier the child is at eating the spaghetti, the brighter uh, the EM counterpart you have. So the fact that you have faster black hole velocities at the end of the simulation corresponds to lower uh, accretion efficiencies, which might correspond to dimmer counterparts 
than otherwise expected. Okay, but is this sort of a contrived scenario where you have like lots of black holes that just happen to be in the same place? I mean, where could you actually get a setup like this? Is it physical? Yeah, that's a good question, because for the simulation, they just initialized a uniform density cloud of gas, which might not be physical. But after they found that you could actually form black holes within this uh, environment, they argued that some potential physical counterparts to these sites are the disk of an AGN, where the density of the gas could be high enough to induce strong dynamical friction so that black holes start to move inward, and also giant molecular clouds where you could have turbulence that prevents the gravitational collapse of extremely high-mass clouds. Okay, so is there a signature of the black hole's physical environment that's imprinted on the merger signal that you could actually use to figure out which of these is the case? That's a great question, and to be honest, we're not entirely sure. I said that you might get dimmer electromagnetic counterparts from uh, one of these chance encounters because you have faster-moving black holes. Uh, In this case, the authors just make an argument from frequency. So they say that the merger rate in an AGN from this happening would probably be about one per year in LIGO, whereas for dense interstellar clouds, you would get potentially 0.02 per year on average. So if you saw a black hole merger, and if it was actually from a chance encounter, then it probably came from black holes chance encountering in the dense environment of an AGN. Cool. So does does this mean what I think it means? Is it time for the astro soundscape? Of, of this... I have to say this every time. Oh, I, I was going to join else... in on that one. <laughs> <laughs> You say it. Astro soundscape of the space fortnight. Indeed, that's what it means. (laughs) All right. What have you got ready for us? Yeah, I'm going to play an audio for you. Hopefully you will be able to hear it. Let me share my screen. Yay, audio. That is what it takes. (laughs) Sounds like someone taking a bite out of a giant cookie. (laughs) the the cosmic cookie an enormous cookie and an enormous alien (laughs) melena your guess it kind of sounds like a spacecraft launching or something but like probably less dramatic so i'm guessing it's not that but that was the first thing that came to mind (laughs) so uh, i will say that melena is slightly closer than will was (laughs) (laughs) although both very good answers (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this sound is actually Philae, which was the lander for the Rosetta mission in its first touchdown on the comet 67P churyumov gerasimenko So, there was an instrument on Philae called Sesame Cassie that was turned on during its descent and registered the vibration in the lander's feet Whoa. as it touched down on this comet. So what you're saying is I'm the exact opposite of right. It's like the opposite of a lot. You're anti-right. There's an anti-correlation between your answer and the correct answer. But what this means is that if 67P had an atmosphere, this is what Philae's landing would have sounded like to humans. That's awesome. Or to aliens on this uh, comet. That's if it had an Earth-like atmosphere. That's true. That's true. Mm. But that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's yeah, our wow. astro soundscape of the space Fortnite. Very good. Thanks for <laughs> Thanks, bringing Alex. it. No problem.
Well, I guess I'm the last one to go, so um, I'm excited to talk about the last of the three astrobytes. And we've heard a bunch about different chaotic systems over the beginning of this episode, but my astrobyte takes a slightly different approach by describing the algorithms that go into studying those systems. And so this astrobyte is called a reversible n-body integrator with Janus by Sokcian T, and it's about a paper by Hannah Ryan and Dan Tamayo from 2017 discussing how n-body integration schemes can be used to study time reversibility in physics. Time reversibility. So, Melania, you're telling me that there's also chaos potentially going backwards in time in addition to our traditional treatment of chaos in the forward time direction. Yeah. Yeah, so in addition to having to worry about it in forward time, uh, we also try to integrate uh, systems that are known today backwards to figure yeah, out why not? what. Yeah, yeah just you go know, back. To, <laughs> sure. <laughs> to figure out what happened to them like millions of years ago, you know? And in theory, this should work, but you again have to worry about chaos in the opposite direction as well as in the forward direction. Jeez. And so we can use n-body integrators to evolve these systems backwards, but since we're using floating point operations in order to figure out what gravitational effects are occurring over time, we always end up losing some precision just due to rounding errors, and that's because our computers only store a certain number of digits. So these errors can accumulate over time and make it impossible to retrieve the correct initial conditions just because you only have so many numbers stored after your decimal point. This is such a philosophically romantic idea, though, that the past is as unknowable as the future. Isn't that nice? Because it's, it's really true to a large degree. I mean, we, we think we understand the past, but we just believe it to a much higher degree of precision than we do the future. Um, but it's an interesting problem. That's the seagull yeah. phenomenon, right? If I'm remembering it correctly. Oh. Alex, not everything's a seagull. <laughs> <laughs> a seagull knows not where he comes from. <laughs> it's beautiful. Well, how do you get around this issue, though, You know, when you're doing it computationally? Get a bigger computer, add more digits to your floating point? So the authors of this paper managed to get around it with a really clever idea, which was that they only use integer operations that are exactly precise throughout hmm. their computations. And so they took a standard leapfrog integrator, which is a second order precision method for numerically integrating values at interleaved times. And they stored positions and velocities of all of the objects in the system as integers on a really fine grid. So instead of storing them as floats, they just stored them on this fine grid as integers. And they managed to make their algorithm exactly reversible by calculating all of their floating point operations, such as the effects of the gravitational forces, in the middle of each time step and rounding to the nearest integer on the grid um, for each actual time step that they saved. And so even if they don't get a perfectly precise solution, it allows the user to retrieve the exact same value when they integrate forwards and backwards. Okay, so it sounds like potentially it would work in theory, but I'm sure there are lots of things for which that was the case. So <laughs> how, how did these authors test it to actually show that it works in practice? 
So they looked at the gravitational collapse of a thousand particles that they set up in a configuration that spelled Janus, and in another configuration that spelled Leapfrog, and they evolved it forward to gravitationally collapse uh, between t equals zero and t equals 500, and so it just collapsed as a self-gravitating cloud that spells a word should. And then they just integrated it backwards for the same amount of time, and they perfectly recovered the exact same configuration of the words where they were initially set up. What do you, what do you mean it spelled out a word? Oh, like they set up the particles so that it spelled out a word on the screen, and oh. they just let it gravitationally collapse. Oh, that was like a fun joke? Yeah, maybe. Oh, okay. I mean, it, it, it really illustrates it nicely, though, because it's like a nice particular configuration where you can see, like... Other integrators that they tested would just recover a pretty fuzzy version of the word, but theirs was nice and pristine. That's very cool. Yeah. But that's yeah. that's not really chaotic, right? So how, how would that work with a chaotic system like the solar system, say? Yeah, so this is sort of looking at basically these numerical rounding errors, but they're not necessarily looking at chaotic timescales, for example, but they can also apply this n-body integrator in order to study chaotic systems such as the solar system. So the solar system has a Lyapunov timescale of roughly 5 million years, um, and that means we can't really predict the location of these solar system objects and their orbits beyond more than about 5 million years into the future. Which seems like a pretty long time to us, but it's actually pretty tiny on astronomical timescales. And so the authors use their code to study the evolution of the solar system for 300 million years. And they ran 24 different simulations where they just move Mercury by a meter each time, randomly in some direction. And the simulations ended up diverging exponentially over about six and a half million years, as you might expect, which is pretty close to the Lyapunov timescale. Uh, but importantly, that's showing that the numerical integrator is self-consistent and it's not the limiting factor anymore. So now the limiting factor in this case is shown to be the precision of our observations. It's shown to be the Lyapunov timescale hmm. rather than computational limitations where hmm. we get, you know, numerical noise that just builds up over time. Very cool. Is this code available? Can we download and use it? Yeah, this is a great open source code. It's called Janus, uh, and you, it's publicly available for anyone to use. You can just Google. The name is J-A-N-U-S. Very cool. Great. Great. So I guess now it's a good time for our one-sentence summaries. So Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. Due to the chaos of three-body interactions, we can only study the likelihood of black hole mergers by chance encounters from empirical studies of n-body simulations. But LIGO data has brought studies like these into the realm of possibility. That's one sentence, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Will, how about yours? The n-body problem is definitely chaotic, even with the help of computers. But if you run an ensemble of simulations with slightly different initial conditions, maybe you can understand the evolution of the group. Milena? Even as chaos reigns throughout the universe, we can still use clever tricks to get around problems related to numerical chaos and instabilities, as demonstrated beautifully by the n-body code Janus. Nice. Very nice. So, a general question that's sort of been bubbling in the back of my mind as we've been discussing is, 
um, sort of like what exactly the nature of chaos is. So is this something fundamental? Is this just reflective of our inability to simulate really complex systems? Um, is it just that we don't have good enough measurements? And if we had increasingly better and better measurements, if we actually knew where everything was in the entire universe to exact precision, we'd have no chaos? It's an interesting question. I think it's a, it's a tough one for us to answer because I think so much of chaos comes out of our perspective as people. I think our brains are adapted evolutionarily not to have to deal with these sorts of minute changes and long time scales. We just don't have the capacity to intuit what these things mean. So it's kind of beyond our ability to, to really grasp. And so when you look at these problems, they didn't exist until computers could do very high-level processing. Chaos as a field didn't really emerge until the mid-20th century. So I think the reality is it comes down to uh, – it's not a like, a like a force. It's not like it's a fundamental force of the universe. It comes down to our limited ability to interact with the universe. Yeah, I think you make a great point, Will. I, I want to make the point as well that this we've all been talking about deterministic chaos as opposed to just pure randomness. So if we had the infinite precision required for these systems, then we actually could determine what would happen in the future. Uh, we don't, and I don't think we ever will, be able to know the solution to a problem, to a system, to infinite precision. So I don't think we'll ever be able to fully characterize these chaotic systems and predict them into the future. Um, but I think they're just a regime of systems that are hypersensitive to initial conditions. Uh, and I think that is uh, a fundamental phenomenon, not our inability to mm -hmm. characterize them. I like that explanation. I'll add one more piece to this. Yeah. And, and Alex, you said that you know we're talking about deterministic systems where we're, we're failing to measure them, so we can't determine them. Quantum mechanically, there are things that are non-deterministic. That is, there you know, a particle can be in one place or be in another, and until you look, right, it's it's in both quantum mechanically. And so, the, our understanding that there is an answer, right, we can measure Pluto's orbit if we only got there and put a sensor and measured it perfectly. In theory, when you get really, really precise, you have to deal with quantum mechanical effects where it actually physically is impossible to measure the precision and uh, precision location and velocity. I mean, that's Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So at some level, it is kind of fundamental to the universe, right? What do you think, Melina? I think we should all just become analytical theorists. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> like, if you just use analytical theory, then you um... never have to worry about this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so that's actually a really good point, Melina, in that all of these papers deal with simulation in some form. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Why does it seem like chaos is so naturally conducive to the use of computers as opposed to pure analytical treatment? Ooh. I mean, it's it's looking at systems that you can't analytically solve. Like the three-body system, you cannot solve analytically. It's been worked on for hundreds of years, and I think it's actually been proven that there is no solution. And so... You know, there are some things that analytics can't actually reach. Although I think that when it is possible to get an analytical solution, this is a good reason for 
why it's worthwhile because you can get much more precise answers even if you're able to get the answer either way with either analytics or with computation absolutely um if you have the analytical solution it's possible to get much higher precision and so i think it's still valuable to have both approaches uh even if i joke that we should use only analytical because <laughs> 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 then you don't have to worry about this headache of chaos but um yeah that's a good point all right well that concludes episode 11 of Astro Soundbites, the chaotic universe. If you want to read the three Astrobytes that we talked about today and or the associated papers, then check out the links in the show notes. And if you want to hear more of our phenomenal episodes, check them all out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Mm-hmm.